Our gracious, loving, heavenly Father, we give you thanks so much for your word to us. We give you thanks for the things that we've heard over the last few weeks. And we pray for your spirit's work to be among us here, to be able to hear you speak to us here through this word, to speak through me clearly as I ought, uh, to help me speak clearly from this as I ought, and to bless us to keep living for you and pursuing our holiness and sanctification together. Father, we pray that you'd help us to understand your word, that we may respond to it rightly, and to obey you and all that you say. And we pray this for your glory and our joy in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the last few weeks in Romans has been huge. Right? Last time I was up here in the pulpit, I left things on a very, very heavy note. Our problem of sin is all-encompassing engulfing us, wrapping us in this envelope of hopelessness before God. But over the past few weeks, we've heard spectacular truths from the book of Romans. God has acted. He has broken into our world. Jesus took on flesh. He substituted his, fle- his life in our place. He is the glorious sacrifice that turns away the wrath of God on our sins and turns it onto himself. By trusting in Jesus for his, in his death and his resurrection, we have peace with God. There's no more conflict with him, no more war between us and God, a war that we would have lost. Jesus has now made peace between us. And we can enjoy the assurance of God's love and salvation here and now and into the future as well when Jesus returns. Ben gave us uh, a few uh, last week some wonderful reminders. He reminded us that sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. But with everything that we read in Romans chapter, the second half of Romans 3 to Romans 5, we were given this wonderful, wonderful statement. Grace will take us farther than we can imagine we'd go. Keep us longer than we can ever imagine we'd stay. And gift us more than we can ever imagine without pay. That is a wonderful, glorious, awesome truth. But let's work the logic through here a little bit. See, if grace can take you further than sin... And if grace can keep you longer than sin, and if the gift of grace is greater than the cost of sin, then grace is so much greater than sin, therefore we can sin without fear of penalty, for grace is greater. Right? See, one of the issues that is common about preaching and teaching, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and in Jesus alone. Nothing of what we do, nothing that I can add to my salvation, right? But we're saved by these things alone. Preaching this, teaching this, believing this, will inevitably cause some people to ask the question, well, if I am saved this way then doesn't this give me license to sin and do whatever I want? Or to put it another way, like one of my Christian friends at uni, justifying his multiple girlfriends, oh, you know, God forgives everything. God forgives everything 
so I'm free to do whatever I want. You can see the uh, development of this idea at the end of Romans chapter 5. Right, Paul has just given us the glorious assurance of salvation, and he's reminded us that we were all once with Adam, but now we're a part of the new humanity in Jesus. The life of faith is now worlds apart. And he says right at the end of Romans chapter 5, read with me from verse 20. Thank you so much, Uncle Boon Cheng, for reading from there. Right, verse 20, now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased... Grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, I skip over that bit about the law because he'll return to that in the next, uh, next week in Romans 7. The focus, and focus in on that second half of verse 20. You see where he says, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Right? The more people sinned, the more God's grace, His undeserved gift of salvation, of being justified and made right with Him, the more His grace overflowed. The more we sin, the more grace poured out, or uh, God poured out His grace on us. You see that bit right at the end? More sin equals more grace from God. Intriguing mathematics. And so naturally, the question which is begging to be asked is found in chapter 6, verse 1. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Should we keep on sinning if we will get more grace in the end? But before we have a breath to consider that thought, Paul shuts it down. He answers his question with an exclamation point. By no means. Right? Or in, in my outline, no way. Right? In, apparently, the fra- that phrase translated in our Bibles is, is one of the strongest ways that you could ever say never in Greek. Right? No way, not ever, no siree, don't even go there. Now, before we go on to ask, to see how Paul explains this, let me take a moment, sidestep for the moment, ask the question, what is sin? What are we talking about when we sin? He's going to mention sin quite a fair bit in this passage, so it's good to clarify it at the beginning. First, sin is not brokenness. Now, by this I mean sin is not the struggles we experience because of our fallen, broken world. I'm talking about things here like uh, illness or mental health issues or things like that. I know know some people here in our church, our family, my family has been struggling with some of this stuff as well lately, uh, struggling with mental health issues, anxiety, depression, even some here have been wrestling with suicidal thoughts. I want to be clear that the sins that Paul is talking about here is not those things. These things are the result of living in our fallen, sinful world. Sin has caused them, but these things in of themselves are not sins. Uh, You may wrestle with them, and sins may be making them worse, but I don't want you to feel guilty that if if you're wrestling with these things, that Paul is saying you're not doing good enough. So when Paul says we are to die to sin and that sin no longer has dominion over us, he's not saying that your depression or your anxiety, that's gone. It's got no more power over you. You've just got to think differently. He's not saying that. Secondly, sin isn't just the things that we do. It's not just the things that we do. It's not just rule breaking. Yes, sin involves doing things and breaking God's rules, but doing things and breaking rules are outward expressions of what is actually underneath already. 
Sin involves this, but is also more than this. So what is sin? Here in Romans 6, Paul pictures sin as this kind of power, this force. He talks about being a slave to it. Sin is this force that compels us to rebel against God, to do things for self-centered reasons. Sin is also a power and a force that lives within us. So he'll say in chapter 7 that sin causes me to do things I don't want to do. Before we trust Jesus, sin is in complete rule and domination over our lives. You think about the things that you, you have said, the hurtful things that you've said, those thoughts that have come into your mind, the way that you've acted in, in, in the past. Sometimes there's no rational explanation for why you would do that, but the Bible says it's because of sin. It's this power, this force that's worked within each and every single human being. And so in answer to the question about whether or not we should just continue in sin, Paul answers with a firm no. And his first argument against this idea boils down to this. If you have trusted Jesus, if you have received His grace, you have been united with Jesus. And that changes not only how you view sin, but how you view life. Now, to illustrate this point, Paul picks up on a very familiar image for the Roman church, baptism. When a Christian professes their faith in Jesus, they want to testify this to their friends and their family. They undergo water baptism. And very quick aside, on Easter Sunday morning, we're going to have some baptisms. If you're interested, come have a chat to me afterwards. But coming back here, when you want to uh, profess your faith, when you want to witness this and testify this to your friends and family, you go under the water and you come back up again, eventually, depending on how nice you've been to the pastors. Now, the point that Paul is making is not about the baptism itself. He's saying that your physical baptism, at your physical baptism, this is what happens. Sorry, he's not saying at your physical baptism, this is what happens. Your physical baptism is only a picture. It's a representation of what has already taken place in a believer. Your baptism into the death and resurrection of Jesus. See, when you put your faith and your trust in Jesus... What happens to you is that you become united with Jesus in his death and resurrection. Your old sinful self is united with Jesus on the cross. When he dies, your old sinful self dies with Jesus. It is buried with him. And then you are raised with Jesus to the glory of the Father so that you will walk in newness of life like Jesus does. Being united with Jesus is like being uh, trying to go, trying to travel from Brisbane to Sydney on a plane. Right? When we talk about our relationship with Jesus, we often say that we're under Jesus, we're submitting to Him or we're following Him. Right? But now think of our relationship with Jesus like flying on a plane. Right? If you're trying to get to Sydney, you couldn't really do that by being under the plane, right? submitting to the plane. That doesn't quite work. You could try to follow the plane, right? You stand here in Brisbane at the Brisbane airport, you watch the direction where the the plane flies off, and you kind of go, I'll just walk that way for a thousand kilometers and hope for the best, right? Uh, But the key relationship that you have with the plane is not to be under it or behind it or following it. You need to be in it. Why? Because by being in the plane, what happens to the plane also happens to you. If the plane gets to Sydney safely, 
then you get to Sydney safely. Union with Christ works like that. Whatever happens to Jesus happens to you. And so what's the purpose in raising this union with Christ? Paul goes on in verses 5 to 11 to make the point. First, he says in verse 5, notice the if-then argument. If we have been united with him in a death like his, then we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. This is similar wording to what Paul did previously in chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. He's giving us the assurance that if you are united with Jesus in his death, you are most certainly united with Jesus in his resurrection. You can be sure of that. Secondly, in verses 6 to 7, sin is the power that keeps us in slavery to sin. Right? But when we have died with Jesus, we are set free from that power. Once we're dead, sin no longer has any authority over us. In Australia, if you're an Australian citizen, you can have access to something called fee help. It's basically a system where you can borrow money from the government to pay for your university fees during your degree. And once you've graduated and started working, you've got this massive student debt that you have to repay. And through your working life, you generally have a bit of your income deducted to pay off the student debt over your life. But if you happen to die before that debt is fully paid off, it gets, at the moment, automatically cancelled. Right? Your, your, your relatives don't have to pay it back. Your children don't have to pay it back. Your debt is gone. Sin's power over us is like that. Upon death, we are released from it. But the big punch moment, right? The big punch in the gut comes for how this all works in verses 8 to 11. See, if we've been united with Jesus in his death, we have died with Jesus, then sin no longer has any power over us. But we also believe that if we have died with Jesus, then we'll be raised back to life with him in resurrection life. In Jesus' resurrection life, death doesn't have power over him. He died for sin once, so he will never die again. And the life that he currently lives, he lives to God. So if you are united to Jesus by faith in him, you are to consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God. Just the way Jesus is dead to sin and alive to God. Dead to sin, alive to God. It's like it's this new, facing a new direction. You used to face sin and you're obligated to it. Now you face Jesus. You're dead to that. Sin belongs to your old self. And that old self has died with Jesus. It's dead. One of the unique qualities of someone who has died is that they have no say and no power. So your old sinful self is gone. It has no say and no power over you presently. Instead, you are now raised to life with Jesus, so you now walk in newness of life. And here's the punch. New life in Jesus is not the life of sin. Should you continue to sin because grace overflows more? No way. You're united united with Jesus, so live like it. Now, the second question that Paul asks in verse 15 is is more like an extension of the first. Uh, I won't say too much about the law right now. It comes up much more in Romans 7 next week. But basically... uh, the question, the first question at the start of the chapter is something like, can I sin more because grace will cover it all? And now this question in verse 15 is, can I sin more or can I sin because I'm saved by grace and I'm not under any more rules? 
And again, the answer is the same as before. A big no way. Never. Right? How does Paul tackle this question? Now again, he picks up a, another image, another image that would have been familiar to the Roman church. Slavery. Now the key thing to understand about this picture is to remember it's about who your master is. Right? Paul's point in verse 16 starts his argument. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? Now, the key words here are either or. Paul is saying that we are slaves of someone. We are all slaves of someone. We all have a master. It's either sin or God. So many in our world, and even many Christians, think that we're free, right? That we have this thing called free will, so that I can freely choose God or freely choose sin. But that's not the picture of the Bible, and that's not the picture of the will painted in the Bible. Paul is saying here that you either have God as your master by faith through Jesus Christ, or you have sin as your master by default. And that's the bad news. The good news is in verse 17. Read with me. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Thanks be to God. This is the wow moment, right? You were once a slave of sin. Your master was sin, and the result of following that master was death. But now you have been set free, and you've become obedient from the heart. God has given us a heart transplant. Gone is the old, cold, dead, disobedient heart that would not listen to God, And in its place is a warm, beating heart of flesh, which is ready to listen, ready to be obedient to His Word. A heart transplant can only take place when a healthy heart is made available and when the donor has died. For us, the donor has died, Jesus Christ. And He has given us not just a healthy heart, but His own heart the purest of all hearts that has ever lived and ever will live. Jesus was made like us in every way, and that makes his heart a perfect match for our needs. And with this new heart comes freedom. Verse 18, you've been set free from sin. But you see, it's not a freedom on your own. You've not been pulled out of prison and then just kind of got told, I go your way. We are pulled out and we are moved from one master to another master. But remember, the old master promised you nothing but death. The new master promises you life. But of course, this image has its limits. Paul says in verse 19 that he is speaking to them in in human terms because of their natural limitations. God is our new master, yes, and he is a way better master than our old one. But our new master is also our friend. Jesus, through Jesus Christ, God is also our father. With God as our father, as adopted children of God, Jesus is now our brother. 
Right? There's so much more going on as well. But the point of the second half is to say this. We are creatures and we always have a master. We either serve sin, which ends in death, or we serve God, which flows out into obedience and ends with eternal life. And now that we are under grace, we have a new master and that compels us. It compels us to live a new life. The life of sinful rebellion is a life that we have been freed from. Can we continue sinning because grace will keep overflowing to us? No. You are united with Jesus in his death and resurrection to new life. But can I keep on sinning because I'm now under grace and not under law? No. You have a new master. So serve him and not your old master. There are two clear implications from this passage, two distinct imperatives that Paul gives to his readers. And the first is in chapter 6, verse 12. Read with me. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Right? If, you're, if Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, if you've bowed your knee in your life to Jesus as Lord and Savior, the first application is to fight. Fight sin in your body. Don't, just, don't justify sin in your life by saying, oh, oh well, I'm saved by Jesus. Right? It doesn't matter if I obey uh, this sin. Uh, you have no obligation to sin. It calls out to you. It tempts you. But there is no obligation to answer it. But this is hard. Uh, a good doctor knows when the medicine they prescribe will be... Uh, difficult to take. A good doctor knows that if I have to tell you something you won't like, it's going to be hard. And for us, we have a good doctor to help us out through this as well, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a medical doctor. He was also a preacher uh, about 100 years ago or something like that. Um, Not 100 years ago. Yeah, about 100 years ago. Something like that. Um, I'll find out later. Um, Preaching on this topic... Dr. Lloyd-Jones illustrates the difficulty of this mind shift. So he gives this illustration. On the 18th of December, 1865, Abraham Lincoln's government declared at the, the end to the institution of slavery in the United States of America. There, at that moment, legally and in reality, slavery in America was over. Right? But facts and feelings don't always meet. Imagine you were raised in slavery. You have only ever known the life of a slave. And then suddenly on December 18th, that's all over. You're not a slave anymore. You're free. But the next day, as you're walking down the street somewhere in Alabama, you hear the voice of your old master call out, boy, come here. And suddenly, years of experience of slavery come flooding back to your mind. Do you feel like his slave again? Yes. But does that feeling make you his slave? No. Being united with Jesus does the same thing and feels the same way. If we trust Jesus, if we believe in the gospel, our freedom is declared. It's objective reality. It has happened. And here now for Christians is where the battle begins in the mind. 
See, in reality, we are in Christ, but when temptation calls out, it feels like we're back in chains again. And so, just like the former slave has to consciously think, no, that man no longer owns me, we too, when we hear sin's seductive voice, we have to think, no, sin no longer owns me. No, I will not let sin reign over me. I will not let sin rule over me as my master. I will not obey its desires. Keep reciting the gospel to yourself. Right? If the objective reality that you are saved by Jesus and you are declared free from sin. If I could paraphrase Martin Luther on this, the gospel is the principal article of all Christian doctrine wherein the knowledge of all godliness consists. Most necessary it is, therefore, that we should know this article well, teach it to others, and beat it into our heads continually. I, didn't know, I don't know if you know that your, the job description of your pastors is to beat your heads with the gospel continually. Why? Because we need to keep being reminded of the objective reality that we currently live in. Sins pull on us and our experience with it is so powerful. It is so strong. And every time it tempts us, we feel like we're in chains again. And so we need to keep reciting and being told and keep hearing the gospel again and again and again. Beat the gospel into our heads. Keep doing that. Keep reminding yourself of the objective reality that you are forgiven. You are united with Jesus. You have a new master and you are under no obligation to listen and to obey sin's call. That's hard work. That is really hard work. Right? You guys over here, some of you have been in the Christian race and the Christian life for a couple of months, and you're already battling with sin. You're already battling with temptation, already going, wow, I've got the next 50, 60, 70 years of this? The answer is yes. Right? If you've been going on in this race for any length of time, you'll know that it's hard. It doesn't get any easier. I have to correct myself on this because I've told people mistakenly in the past that as you get older in your life, as you mature in your faith, as you grow deeper in the gospel, you will hopefully and prayerfully sin less. And I've realized, no, that doesn't happen because what happens is that as you go on in life, as you mature in your faith, you become more aware of how much sin is there, of how much you wrestle with it every single day. You become more acutely aware of every single subtle sin that you wrestle with. But as you go on in the Christian faith, as deeper and as uh, more tragic in some ways that pit of sin gets, the cross also has to be magnified. Because we remember that grace has abounded more and more. Second application. Twice in verse 13 and 19 we're told, don't present your members to sin, but as slaves of righteousness. Right? Your members here, uh, in uh, other parts of the New Testament, often refers to different parts of the body. Uh, your members here is most likely more than just your body parts. I think it's a reference to everything that makes you, you. 
right? Your powers of reasoning, your imagination, your ambition, your, the desire of your eyes, your feet to take you to places of your choice, your physical and mental abilities, your energy, your personality, your influence, your heart's capacity to love, your money as an extension of your power. Right? Take all of these things and use them not for yourself. Use them to, and don't use them for yourself to obey your sinful desires. Use them for righteousness' sake. Are you using everything that God has created you to be and gifted you with for His purposes and His glory? You know you're doing it right if it feels hard and sacrificial. You know that you're using all of your members for righteousness if it's hard, if it feels like a sacrifice. Doing things for yourself and your own sinful desires is easy. It is super easy. Doing things for righteousness' sake is hard and sacrificial. Here's an example. Let's say you've got a newsletter from a a missions agency, and they say that they need $1,000 to help start up some outreach programs. And so you say to yourself, $1,000, that's pretty easy, right? I I can save up over a few months, right? I can um, cut back on a few things and and be able to give to this. And so you start saving up $1,000 over a few months in, in order to give it away. It's hard. It's sacrificial. It's, it's hard work to do that in order to be generous. And as you hop online and you start filling in the form to send off the donation, you get an email. The latest iPhone X has just come out. It's $1,000. And you're looking at your iPhone 4 or maybe 3 and you wonder how did it ever last this long. And you've got $1,000 saved up. What do you do? Right, the pull of sin is so strong. The pull of selfish service is so powerful. But remember who you are in Jesus. Remember your new master. Live who you are now, not who you were. Now, if you can boil down Romans 6 into a half tweet, it's this. Be who you are now, not who you were. You were a sinner, a self-centered, self-worshipping sinner. But that person is dead. You are now a new creation, alive in Jesus Christ. You are his child. He is your awesomely loving, profoundly gracious, awesome, and majestic master. So live to please Him. Now I want to end this sermon on two quick final notes because each half of this passage, you'll notice, doesn't end on what you should do. It ends on why you should do it. Each of these halves gives us a profound reason why we should do this. The first is in verse 14. Sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. God's grace does not free you so you can sin more. It compels you to live for God. And what compels you to live for God is not the law, it's not the rules of the Old Testament or any rules for that matter. It's because you've been freed from rules. You've been given grace. And because you're united with Jesus, sin has no more power and authority over you. It can feel like it. But remember how you feel is not what is actually true. 
Second and last reason why you shouldn't obey sin. In verses 20 to 23, you were once a slave to sin, but you've been set free. And previous, in your previous slavery, it, it brought fruit, the fruit of shame and death. And now you've been freed, you've received the fruit of just sanctification and eternal life as a free gift of God. You're presented with the choice, death and life. The logical choice is to choose life. So don't choose the temporary over the eternal. Don't choose the momentary sin over the eternal joys to come. Let me pray. Father, help us to understand clearly that when we put our faith and trust in you, that we are a new person. Some of us here today, we, we may not have done that. We're not sure if we've done that. So help us to know Jesus better, to learn more about him, to grapple with who he truly is, and to be able to bow before him. And for, for us here who have proclaimed Jesus as Lord and Savior, help us to live that way. Help us to remember who we are and to not live like we're old people, dead in our sin, but to live this new life out, to be reminded that we are united with Jesus and that he is our wonderful master. And the only logical choice is to keep uh, choosing life and to keep obeying him. Father, help us to keep remembering these things, reciting these things to ourselves, encouraging each other in these things, because the pull of sin, our old master, is so strong, it's so real, but it is broken. We are freed. Help us live that way for our joy and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.